Would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8? We'll be looking at the entire chapter, Hebrews chapter 8. As you turn there, I would invite you, as you are able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he, instruct, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old one, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted by better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make in the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community, and a special welcome to uh, our students. I know for many of you, this is your first uh, Sunday back with us. I uh, hope your semester is off to a good start. Uh, we're continuing this morning um, in our series through the book of Hebrews. If you've been with us for any portion of this series, you should know by now that our uh, theme for the series is Jesus is better. We keep revisiting that motif week after week after week. And one way to think about the trajectory of sorts with this theme is, is to imagine that we're climbing a mountain. And as we continue to go forward in Hebrews, we're climbing higher and higher. So he's talked about how Jesus is better than angels. He's better uh, than Moses. He's better than Joshua. 
Last week, we talked about how Jesus is a better priest and how he ushers in a better priesthood. And we spent some time unpacking what that meant. We said that a priest, just on a very basic level, is a mediator. And biblically speaking, a mediator between a perfect God and his sinful people. And we talked about some of the limitations of the old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. Namely, that it was imperfect. And that it was temporary. Uh, it was not a, a priesthood and a system that was built to last forever. And then we close by talking about how Jesus overcame those limitations through his indestructible. most provocative statement yet regarding the supremacy of Christ. But the author's not done. His argument has not yet reached its crescendo. So he bids us to keep climbing with him. And that's what we'll be doing today as we look at chapter 8. covenant, which in some ways would have been an even bigger deal to the original readers. And so that is going to be the theme that we unpack today, the theme of covenant. And we're going to unpack that theme using a similar set of questions as last week, only we'll be replacing priesthood with covenant. So here's where we're going this morning. Question number one, what is a covenant? We want to begin by uh, making sure we understand uh, what that construct is and how it gets expressed throughout the scriptures. What is a covenant? Number two, what were the limitations of the old covenant? Or to use the language of this passage, what were some of the faults of this old covenant? And then number three, what are the better promises associated with this new covenant? What is a covenant? What were the limitations or the faults of the old covenant? And what are the better promises associated with this new covenant? That's where we're headed this morning, but let's pause and invite God to lead the way.
Father, so appreciated the spirit of Jason's pastoral prayer. A good reminder that there is no place in your kingdom, in your family, in your church for this confident self-sufficiency, this idea that we can sort of figure things out. And I think that's important to consider as we dive into your word. We can read it and we can analyze it and we can attempt to understand it. But at the end of the day, we need you to guide us. We need you to enlighten us. We need you to, to give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear your word and to apply it to each one of our hearts in the ways that we most need it. And so we go forward in the sermon and in the service in a spirit of humble dependency on you. Be with us, guide us. Help us to see you and appreciate you in fresh ways this morning, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first question. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a formal agreement that binds two parties together in a relationship. And it sets the terms for how those two parties will relate to each other. So kind of two key pieces. There's, number one, it's a declaration that, that two parties, two entities are going to be in some kind of relationship together. And number two, the covenant uh, is a guide of sorts for how those two entities will engage in that relationship. And as Jason mentioned in his call to worship, the title... When you enter into a marriage covenant, you're saying two important things. Number one, you're making a formal, public declaration uh, that you're going to be in relationship with your spouse. And number two, you're setting the terms for that relationship. Namely, that you will remain faithful to him or her without condition. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Those are the terms of a marriage covenant between husband and wife. Well, if you read the Old Testament, I know many of you have, you'll see that God repeatedly enters into covenants with his people. And each covenant has a unique context and some unique features. It begins in Genesis 9 with God's covenant with Noah. He promises Noah and his descendants that he will never again send a global flood to wipe out the earth. A few chapters later, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham that if he will trust him and follow him, 
then God will make him into a great nation. He will lead them into the promised land. And he will bless all the world through his family. Keep reading and you'll learn about a covenant that God makes with Moses in the book of Exodus. God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. He forms them into a nation and he says if they will obey his commands, then they will be his treasured people. We're going to talk more about that covenant in a moment. But fourth, the final signature covenant in the Old Testament, if you will, is a covenant God makes with David. You can read about it in 2 Samuel, where God promises David that a king from his line will rule Israel forever. And again, each of these covenants has uh, unique context, unique terms, unique parameters, but there is a common thread I want us to see in all of them. In each and every one, God is committing to be in relationship with his people. And each covenant tells us something unique about the nature of that relationship. All right. And so that's what a covenant is all about. It's saying that two people, in this case God and his people, are going to be in relationship with each other. And these covenants tell us about the unique terms and nature of that relationship. So we turn to our second question. What were the limitations or the faults of this former covenant that our author is speaking about today? And the first thing I want to make clear here is that when the author talks about this old covenant or the first covenant, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant. The covenant that God made with his people after bringing them out of Egypt. This covenant was mediated through Moses, who was representing God's people at that time. Thus, it is often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. So that's the covenant we need to have in mind here as we go forward. And I want to read us a passage that captures the essence of this covenant that God makes with his people through Moses. I'm in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So that right there is the essence and the heartbeat of the Mosaic covenant, and this is the covenant that our author is finding fault with. He's suggesting that there were certain limitations to this covenant. What were those limitations? Well, a common sort of street-level response to this question 
or at least one that I've heard on a number of occasions, maybe you've heard it as well, maybe you've thought this, that the major problem with the Old Covenant is a lack of grace. All right, there's this sort of idea that floats around out there that um, the God of the Old Testament, he was just sort of this mean guy. And he was impatient and, and sort of angry and he was constantly uh, lashing out at his people. And, um, and that was sort of how God characteristically related to his people back then. But then we had this new covenant with Jesus and he's nicer and he's grace. He's sort of come of age and, and there's that whole dichotomy. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not hard to go back there and, and perhaps or seemingly find evidence to support that. And it's clean and it's tidy. Um, but it's not exactly true. And again, I want to point us back to that passage I just read. Specifically to verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This is God reminding Moses and reminding his people that this covenant was initiated by an unconditional act of grace. Before God formed them into a nation, before he gave them the law, before God issued any commands or conditions, God saved them. He rescued them. He delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. And he brought them to himself. And then after that act of grace, after that act of deliverance, then he gave them the law. He told them what it would look like for them to be his representatives on this earth. And so the primary problem with this old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was not a lack of grace. The problem was our lack of of obedience. God was faithful. God honored his terms of the covenant in every way. The problem was not with God or even the covenant. The problem was and still is with us. It's our disobedience, our unfaithfulness, our idolatry. Since the fall, we have this propensity to default into self-sufficiency, to default into worship of created things over and above our Creator. And if you read the Old Testament, you see that again and again and again. Israel's infidelity and unfaithfulness to God in this covenant. So God, under the terms of this covenant, he had every right to be done with them. And by extension, to be done with us. 
That's why just the existence or the presence of a new covenant is so significant. It's God's way of saying to his people, including us, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. Yes, you've been unfaithful to me, and yes, that breaks my heart. But I'm not done with you. I'm going to make a new pathway for relationship. A new covenant that comes with even better promises than the first. And these promises can be found in this prophecy to Jeremiah that's cited here in chapter 8. A prophecy that came many years before Jesus even came onto the scene. So I want to focus our attention there next as we consider our third and final question this morning. What are these better promises that come with this new covenant that Jesus ushers in? And there's uh, three big ones I want to highlight. Number one, we learn here that the law is no longer on stone tablets, but under this new covenant, the law is written on our hearts. In verse 10, he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This is an indication that when it comes to this new covenant, the aim is not just external obedience, but inward transformation. When we enter into this new covenant by faith, through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God comes and actually dwells inside of us through the Holy Spirit. And he begins to change us. He begins to transform us. He begins to shape us into his image. So that's the first great and better promise of this new covenant, that members of it are being transformed from the inside out by God himself. Second, we're reminded here that in this new covenant, our sins are not only forgiven, but forgotten. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus' blood was the perfect once and for all sacrifice, such that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been covered. The work of sacrificial atonement that needed to be repeated again and again and again under the old covenant is now done. It's now completed. It is now finished. Which is why Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. I hadn't really stopped to think about that before I studied this passage this week. Why is Jesus consistently described as as being seated at the right hand of God. 
He's seated there because his work is done. It's completed. It is finished. And that stands in stark contrast to the high priest in the Old Covenant who could never sit because their work, their sacrificing, it was never done. Not so with Jesus in this new covenant whose work of sacrifice is now complete. What this means is that whatever guilt or shame or regret that you might have brought in here this morning, you can know with confidence that it is both forgiven and forgotten thanks to the perfect sacrifice that was offered by Jesus Christ. So, in this new covenant, the law is written on our hearts. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten eternally. All of this paves the way for the third and final promise that's highlighted in our passage. The promise of relationship. The promise of relationship. Look at verse 10 and 11. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. That picture right there, that is the vision that all of the covenants have been marching towards. A vision of knowing God personally. That's the end game. Not just for this new covenant, but for all the covenants. On some level, they've all been about bringing unfaithful people, like Israel, like you, like me, into relationship with a God who can't help but be faithful to us. In each of the covenants that we've talked about this morning, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, each of them had an important role to play in preparing us for this kind of relationship. As Jason mentioned in his call to worship, there were copies and shadows of this future vision. A vision that we now get to experience in part. And one day, we'll get to experience in all its fullness. And I think the, the author's hope here for his readers, and I think God's hope for us this morning is simply that we would appreciate how good we have it. We were talking in our Hebrews meeting this week 
about how easy it is to take for granted life in this new covenant because it's all that we've known. All we've known is Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sins and the forgiveness that's offered and and this new pathway to God. It can be easy to take all that for granted until you stop and think about all the many thousands of years and all the thousands, millions of people who did not have the privilege of living under this new and better covenant that we get to participate in. And so that's my hope for us this morning as we reflect on this new covenant and the better promises that are associated with it, that we would uh, lean into and experience these promises in in a new way, in a fresh way, the transformation of our hearts, the forgiveness for our sins, the personal relationship we can have with God that by the letter of the law, we have no business experiencing. And so as we close here this morning, I just simply invite you to join me in a prayer of thanksgiving that we get to live under and experience the better promises of this new covenant. Please pray with me. Father, what a gift. What a gift it is and a privilege it is to get to live at this time in redemptive history under this new covenant. It's a a gift and a privilege that I confess I can take for granted. but what a special thing to have you dwelling inside of us, writing the law on our hearts, making us more like yourself, to know that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are completely forgiven and forgotten. To be able to know you personally, to be able to talk to you and listen to you and walk with you. What an incredible privilege all that is, Lord. So again, we thank you. We thank you for the gift that is this new covenant. We thank you for all that it costs you to make this relationship possible. And I pray, Lord, that the days ahead for this church would be marked by greater intimacy and relationship with you, which is what you want and long for above all else. And we do too, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.